Welcome to the Digital Twin Fan Club Podcast. But it's not just a club. It's a choice. Hi, I'm Vicky Reynolds. Hi, this is Jonathan Monkley. Hello, I'm Thompson. Hello, my name is Simon Evans. And I'm Henry Fenby Taylor. So uh, we're going to start with some questions from Twitter. The first one uh, that came up was, do we need to define digital twin at this stage? So No, move on. That was easy. Thanks very much. Thanks everyone right. for listening. I'm sure you're all very happy with that answer. So I guess that means we've all got our own definitions in our heads. So, um, so. yeah, let's let's go around and see what they are. So my uh, personal definition of a digital twin is a digital representation of a physical asset. Simple as that. Nice. Doesn't have to be three D. Doesn't have to be two D. Doesn't matter. Uh, I think for me, again, going, kind of going back to the story rather than the definition. The story is about. Um, the, the same story as, as BIM had, the same story as the Internet of Things had. It is about connecting the physical world with the digital for better management of the physical world. I'd agree with both of those. Um, I like the succinct uh, digital version of a physical asset. I think um, the way that data runs between the two is important as well. Um, you would be uh, collecting data in a digital format and um, taking it from the physical asset as well to feed Feed both ways. So we're gonna we're making it quite difficult for Simon and Neil, but that's kind of that's what we want. We want to make it hard for them. Come on, guys. Think, uh, What's left? What's left? So my definition doesn't actually deviate much from what you've said. And I think what's really interesting is if you look at all the definitions out there, they pretty much all say the same core words, which includes physical, some type of representation, and digital. And those are the parts that make it up. Um, what I don't think they all talk about is how defined that representation needs to be. A lot of people think that needs to be a really, really detailed every nut and bolt, but in reality it could be quite simple. And also the connection between the two often isn't talked about. So we say a physical representation, or sorry, we say a digital representation of a physical thing, that's great, that's somehow connected together, but what is about what is in that connection and at what level of detail are you defining it to are the two things that miss mm. for most definitions. So I haven't really given my definition there, but I'm just kind of throwing to the mix. It was a good one, given we're making it harder and harder. So Neil's in the yeah. hardest spot now. You're the last one on the table. Yeah, I guess it goes, I mean, I'm in Henry's camp in terms of where about the story. So we talk about the different ways that we've connected things. So we've, sort of, we've connected computers and people on the internet, and we sort of reach in this world of, you know, we've got the internet of things, which are where we're connecting sort of our products to the internet. And I think... The digital twin uh, world is about that next step of connecting everything else to the internet, that next level of complexity, talking about like static assets. I mean, don't get me wrong, and um, uh, um, hopefully Simon can expand on this as, as our digital twin historian. Um, you know, digital twins in the other industry is born from products generally, um, maybe moved into process engineering and the heavy industries. And that's it, it sort of had its exit point when it's, and I'd imagine somewhere in those industries when, oh, this BIM thing is here, but we've been talking about digital twins and they sort of hit each other. And it's kind of goes back to this um, building information modeling gave us a story within um, within our scope. When I say our scope, I mean sort of the built environment, the built, uh, including the infrastructure like roads 
rail and buildings. And I think Digital Twins has enabled us to make a easier to digest story about how we're going to achieve that connection to the internet of our assets. So the internet of infrastructure. Internet of twins. Yes. So, or twin infrastructure. Twin infrastructure. High five all round. Yeah. <laughs> Come on. Ah, bring it in. I gotta say that's that's credit to Dan Roster there. That was his term. <laughs> Dan, 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 Dan. So Why are you here, Dan? Why are you here? Dan's busy writing the BS for digital twins, isn't he? Probably. Probably. Yeah, well, whilst we whilst we're chatting absolute rubbish about it, he's actually making stuff happen. That sounds like Dan. That sounds I think, like um, so, so one thing I've always wanted to get off the ground is a hashtag that is what Dan said. Because Dan knows a lot about lots of things and when he says, oh, this is what I think it is, I have nothing to add to that. I always just want to say what Dan said. So um, for the future... Wait, are we the Digital Twin fan club or the Dan Rossiter fan club? I think they're the same thing. (laughs) (laughs) Should we define Dan Rossiter? (laughs) So one of the interesting parts there is about really where this has come from. Because it's right, how much do we need to define it? We look at where it originated. So putting the historian hat on, many people think this is a new revelation for our industry. Like it was invented last year, it's also exciting, it's actually come to replace BIM, which all of which is rubbish. We know it's been around for at least 20, 30 years. You know, what NASA were doing with the Apollo 13 and the digital mirroring, as they called it, was arguably a digital twin. Formula One, the process industry, has been all doing it for a long time. So on that point, slight tangent, why do you think there's, there's like a collection of people in our industry are frustrated with the idea of the digital twin movement? What do you think's caused that? Oh, I mean, I just think that's, I think personally think that's straight down to, uh, you know, niches. Uh, it looks like it's, as Simon slightly alluded to, that some people fear that uh, there is a BIM size niche, that building information modeling size niche, and uh, digital twin will come and occupy that space. I honestly think it's. I, I think, think it's, it's, that it's a natural. We have a life cycle of ideas, and um, and behind those ideas, then we have a life cycle of innovation and it becoming a thing. And I, I, I think it's you know, people that are upset about digital twins have a lot of emotional and en- emotional energy in the building information modeling world. I think what we need to do is you know, I, there was a time when I felt a bit like that because. I, I was frustrated because this digital twin thing came along and it was, oh my God, what a great way to explain this. That's so frustrating. Why didn't, why didn't we do it? We put so much energy into making something happen, but we didn't quite make that sexy story. Mm. That, the, the, sort of the, the narrative, the, yeah. The, that, that, that thing that um, you know, makes you be able to go to your hairdresser and tell you what you do for a job. <laughs> so it's, it's probably similar to when how a lot of CAD managers felt when the BIM manager started to appear. Exactly, it's exactly that. Yeah. <laughs> I see, Jonathan has uh, just air thrown a grenade. He does that a lot. It's a, it's a meeting trait uh, that it provokes conversation. I'm very, I, I think there is, there's an element as well, though, of um, for anyone who has been out in the trenches on site, really struggling to deliver what we have uh, at the moment in terms of process, um, then getting all these new buzzwords thrown around and then clients asking for, well, can you deliver me a digital twin um, when, we're, when we're struggling sometimes on occasion to even get the basics right and deliver uh, good BIM processes. And, and so I think there's a bit of frustration there as well that we're, we're running before we've learnt to walk mm. properly. And this gets us back to that... Sorry, it gets back to the question of the definition, is that 
we're in this we're in this weird chicken and egg situation where we need to get going and it's it's another symptom with getting on with a project is we need to get on with delivery mm. um but as humans we sort of we know inherently that you know there is value in planning but the value of that planning you can't you can never see because that value is only seen by not making mistakes so it's very difficult to... So Digital Twin isn't going to replace BIM, is it? BIM's always no. going to be a process that underpins... It's part of it. Unless you do information management, you can never... So do you think the frustration comes from the fact that BIM hasn't properly matured across all our industries yet and there is still a heck of a lot of work to do in that space to make it efficient and quick and slow? I think it goes back to Simon's earlier point of um, if we don't define it, then it is for everybody to define, mm. which is which is the risk, isn't it? That's the, the ultimate risk that I think people are looking to avoid is that suddenly everything becomes digital twins. Or people do one-upmanship. So I heard someone the other day talk about how they're doing digital triplets. And that's probably as a sales <laughs> get team out. say, get away from digital twin with what next stage above it. Yeah. So there's always going to be that one-upmanship in the industry, when it especially comes to professional services as well. So that's a bit like we will give you BIM level three that you quite often mm. saw in the early days. Collaborated yeah. yeah. in the cloud via the Internet of Things, via a that brings the system. That brings us very neatly onto a question that uh, I received from a private message, which was, uh, is BIM Level 3 the same as Digital Twins? I don't think so, was the, was the kind of caveat after the message of, I, d I don't agree with this, but I've heard it raised, and I think it is worth, uh, it's worth asking well, you guys that question. There's, there's, a, there's two answers to that question, isn't there? There's the actual, according to the standards, and the development of those, the levels of BIM are no more. So talking about BIM level three is just pointless because it's not a thing. I mean, I'm still getting people talking to me on a regular basis about, can we do BIM level two? Um, so, and, yes. that, and, this, and then this is where we get into that tension, right? So we've, we've created the momentum of all that stuff and all that language. And I think a new set of stakeholders are starting to move in in that space and it's, and it's 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 something that happens. It's it's like moving from CAD to BIM, as I think Jonathan was saying about the managers. It's that we're all talking about the same sort of journey, and those those touch sort of the stepping stones are very similar. And I think that. Um... Um, alludes quite a lot as well to uh, with BIM where we started to define very quickly and then build processes on that definition very quickly um, which which then brought us into a load of issues where terminology was released into the industry that wasn't quite right so then it was retracted and uh, uh, new processes and procedures were written and then the ISO came along and terms were replaced again and it, I think that should, for us should be a huge lessons learned for when we're looking at the definition of something like a digital twin um, that actually we, we should let we should let a definition breathe in the industry for a short while so that we get some feedback, we get some lessons learned. By the time we're releasing any kind of protocol procedure standard, it needs to have been properly and robustly tested. So we're talking, uh, this is something I wanted to kind of uh, bring the definitions together for earlier, is there are very two lines here. One is the narrative and one is the technical implementation. So they they do need to work hand in hand because I, I mean the bim wedge the famous levels one two and three was in a very effective storytelling device if people don't know anything else about bim certainly in the uk that i come across they know the bim wedge 
And the fact that, going back to the question of, is BIM Level 3 the same as Digital Twins? Um, the answer is, of course, no, because BIM Level 3 was always an aspirational end state for, it was a direction of travel. It was, a, we're going over here, we're going to bring more digital uh, models together, we're going to have better access to information, it's going to work better, we're all going to work better together, it's going to be great. And then, in the future, BIM Level 3, it'll be seamless is kind of the short version of the story, I guess. So, to think about everything we've just talked about, it does need to be defined in some sense, but in a way that doesn't constrain it and that allows it to develop into something that is driving value for clients. So it's not, here's the definition, if you if you don't stick within these boundaries, you ain't doing a digital twin, Therefore, you're non-compliant, blah, 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 blah. Like it, that's, that's the key point, I think, for me. And it feels like there needs to be some authoritative source to define it. So my, my reference mark here is the work done by the Centre for Digital Bill Britain. And in their Gemini Principles publication, where they set out the principles, if you will, the nine principles by which you should develop a twin, they also put in their a, a broad definition, which doesn't really differ from anything we've said here. What that does mean is if you have someone who has a bit of credibility put a word out there or definition, it gives you something to rally around and everyone can say, oh, that's a kind of a definition I can get on board with, rather than every single software company or technology company or consultant basically using the same words, putting them in a different order and adding on, but we do it better. Mm -hmm. the, the key I think the interesting thing about the Gemini principles when I've ever seen them be presented is um, you know, one of the things that we were discussing before we switched to Michael was about objectives and making objectives for BIM and, uh, and, and that type of conversation. I think the principles is almost a, a step back and it's the, um, they talk about the, the, the creation of a conscious of the National Digital Twin following the principles, which kind of is a, uh, a layer extraction above that, which I think is really useful mm. um, because then you've got this consciousness to be able to filter into something that is, you know, it's created for the, for the public good. Now, how that gets converted into sort of, we've got the national digital twin, we've got the industrial digital twin, and there is tension between those two things because there has to be a commercial reality to the investment required to achieve that. And I think when we talk about a definition, we're not necessarily talking, because I think that national picture's pretty much there. I think the thing that is missing, and, it's, and I think it's, um, not missing because of anything that's been done bad. I think it's just we just reached that point of maturity where we need to have that conversation about what does it mean at that that level. Mm. And if you wait to the end of the podcast, we'll be giving that definition for free. <laughs> I made no such promise. Just going out there. So uh, here's a question that we were asked. Um, are we going to be collaborating or liaising with the UK BIM Alliance whilst we're forming this group and discussing definitions? So the Digital Twin Fan Club was founded on an idea of um, just being a thing to, to drive the idea of Digital Twin within industry, not particularly aligning ourselves to anyone, not aligning to businesses, not aligning to necessarily the UK BIM Alliance or the Centre of Digital Bill Britain. We're just there to support the idea in industry because we all had passion about the idea of what Digital Twin could achieve. So it is about being open, it's about being collaborative. We're there to support, but we're not there to kind of sit with the UK BIM Alliance or sit with the Centre of Digital Bill Britain and do stuff, I suppose. or Dictate. Dictate. It's just We're just there to support, to support their objectives and support their goals. 
And also, I think a key principle was to be uh, have the ability to ch- give people a, a, a place to challenge. If they, if they had an issue, they could come to the Digital Twin Fan Club and say, I have a problem with this, can you give me the ability to get out into industry? I think that was one of the, the key founding principles, wasn't it, Neil? Yeah, well, it, I, I suppose the tiniest history that we have is we, we were um, uh, having an exchange on Twitter and said, well, you know, hashtag <laughs> Digital Twin Fan Club, and then I think what followed was that should happen. So yeah. this is our attempt to... Is, is it an element it as well? Because in my head, Digital Twin has become quite a, a term... An exclusive term so you either understand digital twins you're involved in digital twins or you're not and there's an element of it being now heavily commercialized as well whereas this the digital twin fan club is a bit more of a safe haven for people to come together informally chat and actually realize that this term has got a lot of mileage in it but also a lot of noise mm. and then share ideas with yeah. an open space where we're not aligned with any one industry discipline or whatever it's just a place to hang out and I think that's really important, actually, because um, it was Jonathan who approached me and, and asked if I was interested in, in having anything to do with this club. And my first thought was, well, I don't really know anything about digital twins. Um, and it was then only after speaking to, to Jonathan, Neil and the guys a little bit more um, that I realised that actually that makes me quite a good person to have in this group because it's an objective industry viewpoint. So Yeah, I, yeah. I suppose you know, it has the word clubbing it. Which, everyone wants to be part of a club. Yeah, everyone wants to be part of a club. <laughs> fans club, though, because it, it's not like the sort of club that uh, Victorian gentlemen would go to escape their wives. Around the corner from this building. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, uh, that's not why I'm here. <laughs> no, what? no. Uh, anyway, <laughs> moving on. <laughs> no, the sort of fan club where uh, you get a nice badge. Oh, no, I'm not promising badges. What have I done? It's led by the fans for the fans. There we go. There <laughs> we go. <laughs> Simon, your eloquence is as always I think the key strapline was you are the digital twin fan club. It's not us, is it? It's everyone who wants to be a member of it. It's Ooh. like Fight Club, but for digital twins. And we and talk about talk, it. And you can talk about yeah. it. So, so it's we nothing like Fight Club. But apart from that... I think the, I think the um, <laughs> important thing here is... Yeah, we're having an open conversation now about what it is because we haven't worked out what it is. It's not exclusive. It's We're working it out. So to answer the question, willing to talk, willing to do whatever, I think there may be an issue about alignment. I think there's um, talking, facilitating conversation, but I don't think we should be solidifying definitions in our space that's somebody else's job. So I think actually one of the key frustrations for me why I started that conversation with you, Neil, was... The fact that I was getting sold digital twin solutions from mm. software vendors, and I was just like, that's wrong because that's what creates confusion in industry. And I think, for example, people come, a body comes to us and said, Can we sponsor you to do events? And we've said no. Yeah, no, we, 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 we could have capitalized in a lot of money. And there was that book deal as well, wasn't there? The <laughs> yeah. And the film. And the film. Yeah. But I think it is important to note as well, though, uh, quite a few members of the UK BIM Alliance and a few other different um, groups and initiatives were at our first fan club event. Mm. And they came there not with their hats on from those initiatives, but as just human beings who wanted to come and chat about that as well. And uh, with so, the yeah. beer and uh, the pizza. With their yeah. passion for twins. Yeah. Yes, passion for twins that's and pizza. Yeah. But that's not a prerequisite. No. So you can be a hater. So, so yeah, absolutely. So the fan club is about bringing those people together. It's We're all going to have our own definitions or our own stories or our own whatever, and that's fine. We, we're actively welcoming that. That's mm-hmm. the message. I'm... I'd love for us to become a, 
a place where um, people can come with those definitions and it, we can be almost like a bit of an acid test as well. So you could come along to one of our events and, uh, and, and we can discuss the definition and, um, and, and what all different people from the industry feel about that so that we get a good, a good gauge of what will be successful, what might not, what might not be successful um, and, uh, and where we can go. So one of the key things that came out of the initial um, fan club event at UCL was there is the, these, there's the top-down principles are being created, but we think the digital twin fan club can be the, the kind of bottom-up approach where the people with ideas come and the people who've piloted something can come and show off what they've done to create that kind of that bottom-up approach from pilots and success stories to kind of drive that upward approach with an industry from the people that are actually doing stuff in this space. That's a much more eloquent way of saying what I was trying to say. Thank you. <laughs> so as a fan club, we all think uh, digital twins are cool. Why don't we discuss uh, what cool things we've seen in the digital twin space so far? Well, well, um, it, for me personally, it's been quite frustrating because I've heard um, a lot of great things from other people, but personally, I've never seen anything come to fruition in a way that I, I think it could. I've got to uh, say, I, I, that's exactly my experience as well. At the moment, it just feels like it's a good idea. Yeah, absolutely. And I can see so much potential. And especially, actually, at the um, fan club event that we had, we're starting to hear about stories where um, I, I can see a fantastic end product coming to, to play. Something's actually going to happen. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And so, um, yeah, that, that actually left me feeling much more upbeat than, than I was going going into it. It was a great event, wasn't it? We, it did was, a, we had a really good time. It was we? pretty good, yeah. I guess once, it's a good once time I got to there. make a, a public service announcement announcement Simon what happened <laughs> I was going to say um, really good thing about the event so I shared some of the work that we've been doing on digital twin maturity and just found out recently that it's been shortlisted for the management consultancy awards Ooh. So that's, that's quite oh, do we get to say that we, we'd be award winning as well right by yeah. association of Simon. oh no well, so it was one of, become one of those clubs yeah. are we? oh no <laughs> one of the one of the early events where we test the material to a, a large forum and it was really well, well received on the day we even had Michael Greaves give the introduction, of course, yes. to the whole Digital Twin fan club. Yes, um, you guys didn't think I could do it, did you? You so, guys didn't think I could get that guy. No, but, you didn't, but you did well. So I did well. Speaking of cool stuff in Digital Twin, twin Space, Michael Greaves worked with NASA, didn't he? Historically. Yeah. So did he? That, okay. I, I didn't, think, I didn't know you read about him in the background. That's I, where I, you originally I, came from. You were from. just talking about uh, Apollo 13. Yes. Yeah, and yeah. I'd not heard about that. I'll be honest, Digital Mirroring... It, it sounds like digital mirror neurons to me. That's where my mind went immediately. It sounds like black mirror. Yeah. yeah. So um, I guess, yeah, my point I was saying earlier is that digital twins, or the point I was saying sometime in this podcast, is that digital twins are not new. They've been around for ages, yes. like 20 years or so. And one of the first early examples people cite is by NASA during the Apollo 13 missions, when Apollo 13, if you've seen the film, was famously coming into a bit of trouble, um, and they were trying to rectify and try and work out how they're yeah. going to bring it home safely. And they did something... Which which they termed at the time digital mirroring, or a word along those lines, where they reconstructed all of the systems using those bits they had, spare parts within the control room, and used that to work out how they could fix the spaceship or the asset when it's in space so they could bring the, the guys home oh, safe. Oh, so it was, it was directly as a result of some incident that they needed to solve. 
So they needed to pro effectively like, prototype a solution. They, they rapidly prototyped what would be the first digital twin. Yeah, oh, that's cool. And that's one of the early examples. And then past that, you know, over the last 10 years or so, we've seen Formula One having a big play in this, uh, the manufacturing industry, and then it went into the process and the heavy industries, and now finally into the built environment. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting. I mean, I, I've always been a massive fan of NASA, and it's it's always nice to follow in their footsteps. I've read tons of their standards. Shut up. We are. He's waving his thing. Oh, no. Did you do that on purpose? No, I did not do that on purpose. <laughs> we need a photo. Who owns NASA t-shirts? That's amazing, especially when they're British. <laughs> so, That's all right. So, so, uh, so yeah, I, I'm, as I say, I'm a massive fan of the uh, the NASA standards. I have been reading NASA, so NASA BIM standards. Um, NASA, well, they're NASA equivalent. Standard. They're but, uh, modeling standards. Well, they're actually so amazing. So, but, yeah, we don't have to have... A, I mean, oh, God, when was Apollo 13? Was it the 60s? 60s or 70s? I was going to say the oh, film. Well, we <laughs> 1972? Simon is going to furiously Google. Okay. Oh, do you know, I type in Apollo 13, and the first result is Apollo 13 Digital Twin. As wow. in, you know, auto-suggest on Google. Wow, it's almost like it's well. listening to us. Almost. So it was April 1970. Wow. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, so we've got so stuff born. that's happened in the 70s, I mm. suppose. Anything happening today? I think the, the only... Well, my personal experience of, I don't think we call it a digital twin project, but we um, working on a collection of schools where we involved maintenance. Um, we had a guy walking around with a thermometer testing temperature, and that was literally his job. Uh, we didn't replace the guy. Can you just draw me the mental image? Are we talking like a glass th thermometer? Literally test the temperature manually, nice. yeah, on a daily nice. basis as part of the KPI. So we... Um, used IoT sensors uh, in each room connected to the BMS um, build management system and started in that way. So you were just measuring the temperature Basically, automatically? Basically, yeah, single, single, uh, that was the, the single thing it was there to achieve. But there's actually something like 140 data streams coming out of these sensors. Okay. And it actually picked up on a really weird anomaly. Every night at two o'clock in the morning, the building was going to maximum temperature and then normalizing again. Uh, every night, and it had it supposedly it had been doing since the school was built. That was actually a commissioning cord that the um, commissioning team had put in and forgot to turn off. So every night the building was going to maximum temperature and then freezing itself and then normalizing, and that was picked up. So that using IoT sensors, digital twin esque. Um, I mean, I can yeah, you can, there's I, an I, argument for that being a digital twin. I mean. It, does it need to be automated? No, not really. It's it's brought information, it's brought telemetry from a thing, from product and asset, mm. and it's enabled you to make a good decision. And it takes us into that debate that we had at the event about do you need a 3D, you know, does a, free, does a digital twin need a 3D model? Or mm. as a famous Twitter poll I saw recently, is an air traffic control system a digital twin? Oh, I think that's a Dan Roster one, isn't yeah. it? Oh, there we go. Hashtag what Dan says. Hashtag <laughs> what Dan said. <laughs> oh, we've come around full circle again. Yeah. We, we love you, Dan. But so it's an interesting debate, isn't it? Because you're right, a lot of people think, rightly or wrongly, a digital twin, whatever that means to you, is some type of geometric representation over which information is overlaid or connected that's pertinent. Yeah. But mm -hmm. in reality, is that true? I mean, it could be if you wanted it to be. If that was what mm -hmm. you needed for how you manage your asset, like a Formula One car, it's helpful to have a bit of maybe a background with the Formula One car so you know roughly where that telemetry is coming from. But really, you're looking at time series data that is about traction, power, torque, all those sorts of things. So you are you're getting better and than geometric. The, uh, the, great, uh, the last Grand Prix series that went by with the double pit stop. Was it McLaren? 
Oh yes, yeah, yeah. I know what you mean. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Both needed to come in at the same yeah. time, and the level of planning required for them to, you know, one person's come into the pit lane, do what they need to do and go, and then mm. the following car, and everything went. I mean, it was. I don't know the stats. I'm guessing we might do a little. Yeah, yeah. Have a little bit the actual statistics were, um, <laughs> uh, it, you know, in ten seconds they had both pits, and it was just uh, everybody raved about the planning required to do that, and it's yeah. Yeah, they would have practiced that, and it wouldn't just have been like that. Planning isn't you know go out into a field and have two cars stop. They would have been able to have a level of simulation. It's interesting, in though, isn't it? Because it's like, like like that digital mirroring, the kind of physical mirroring as well, is that. There is an opportunity, it seems, that you could have a digital twin as part of a system and you you are using it and you test it physically. So it's not just ha like the, the, the digital twin and its plans and its uh, value isn't just virtual. It is informing physical things as you're trying to do them. So if you're planning your pit stop, for example. Yes, and yeah. I think this is an interesting point and actually... The digital mirroring piece, I think, is what a lot of people think a digital twin is. It's a mm -hmm. it's a mirror of reality, but it's it's far from that. You it, have actually, to from find... a technical perspective, having a mirror of reality is almost impossible because and you can't and unnecessary. It. Yeah, if you you have to. So it's the same with BIM. We have to identify what the potential benefits are or what we want to use it for to then develop it in the right way. So, for instance, if McLaren wanted to use um, a, a digital twin for maintenance of the car or for, for testing the geometry or how to how to put it together or do a pit stop as quickly as possible, they need geometry. And if it's just about speed, then they need stats. And it's it. that's why when we're defining something like a digital twin, it's really hard to say, OK, it's just this or it's just that, because it all comes back to what are you trying to achieve in the end with this process? And, and is there an element as well of how closely related they are? So if we try and compare digital twins to humans, so you could have an identical twin, which would be a complete copy of yourself, or a non-identical twin, where it's pretty much the same DNA, but looks different. Or they could have a cousin, or a distant cousin. You know, there's probably elements of which, of abstraction away from, mm. from you, and how similar it is to you, depending on what you're trying to achieve. It's very mm. interesting there, because you get with, um, it's uh, that chaos theory of you can only predict a complex system if you understand the starting conditions very well. What if you had a digital twin of yourself, but then from then on, that digital twin lived its own independent life Ooh. from you? Bam. <laughs> no, I think it's a very important question because it's not a digital twin anymore. It's its own unique thing. It's that interface between the two things yeah, that keeps them twins. Which is why um, I think we mentioned at the beginning, it's important to have a two-way data stream. That you have to have information from the physical asset, I would say, feeding back into the digital asset to um, uh, to to keep it a twin. Otherwise, it's its own uh, own identity, but just identical, going so, on a different path. I think I know Neil's got some views on this as well. Passing it back over the ping pong table, <laughs> what do we mean by data stream? What do we mean by data stream? As in, does it have to be a direct digital link, or are there other ways that you could exchange data between the two? I don't think it matters as long as the data is accurate and it's being uh, trans, uh, transported from I, one place to the place that it needs to be. I was Every single to... digital twin will probably have a different interpretation of what it thinks of that. Yeah, so I think I, to I, define I, that is like, that would be like impossible. I, I unfairly there tried to pass it over the invisible table to the other side of the yes, room. Well, it's very interesting because well, Neagle has this look at He's looking like, I don't know what the hell you're talking you about. You can see the gears turning. <laughs> 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 so, okay, I guess Friday afternoon, 
the, set, the setup of that one. Was. It's also not an invisible table. It's a very real table that we're setting. I know, it's a digital table. For the <laughs> listeners, um, uh, Neil's beard did start twitching uh, when Simon was speaking at that point. Hashtag twitching beard. So the what I was trying to pass over the table was the, uh, the idea that many people will say that a twin is only a twin, whatever twin means to you, if it's got IoT or it's got a live digital connection between the physical and the digital and back again. I would challenge that and say that if you had a physical model and some type of digital model, great, anything can be that data exchange. Even if a man is taking measurements from the physical and then types into spreadsheet, in the digital, then looks at the photo and then makes an intervention back at the physical. So we're talking about maturity here, aren't we? Yes. Like a low level of maturity would be that more manual more, thing? More manual exchange or link between the two yeah. worlds. It's, yeah, yeah I, I, I can kind of see where you look at it. So the world that I look through, my, so my lens is around transaction cost economics. So a digital twin and it's physical and it's digitalness. The bit in between is essentially a friction, and that friction can even be, as you say, a person mm-hmm. physically collecting that data at that particular data point, and it takes time for you to go from A to B, and it will be that far behind, yeah. all the way through to you know 100 milliseconds of uh, of, of lag. Can we? Uh, can you just give uh, give me a little definition of transaction cost economics? Transaction cost economics is six words. Um, six words. <laughs> it's well, it's friction. It's you got five more to use. Friction, no, one. Friction, uh, friction and... Uh, the that, co- that is not the definition of friction that I've heard. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, today is not the day for a lecture in transaction co- Not from a Why? Freud, Freud is sticking <laughs> as well. Okay, transaction cost economics. I think we'll have a little segue. Transaction uh, cost economics. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay, so that, that's you, somebody who, who tells people how to row on a boat, isn't it? A transaction cox or, or to swap boats. Yes, yes. transaction cox. Nicely, nicely made more. Yes. But uh, just, just on that point though, I mean, um, we go back to why we're why we're doing this, this and why we're collecting data, and most of the time it is. Be- to become more efficient and make better decisions, in which case you then have to look at that scenario where there's a man with a piece of paper um, taking data from one area, going back to his office and typing it into a laptop. Is that really efficient? Is that solving any of the problems? If we're going to go to the effort of having a digital twin, surely you can digitalise a form. You can, I'd completely agree. But I think you're completely right, and I think then speeding up that that friction layer, mm-hmm. to use the uh, professor of economics' word there, um, is <laughs> nice part thing. of... Friction part. layer is a good... That's, mm-hmm. I like that. But there's it's maybe a good way of describing isn't it? That layer in between the two worlds of the digital and the physical world, the closer you can bring those together, and the transaction time, mm. the more... F- in most cases, more effective you'll be. Yeah, because otherwise you're just a sticking plaster, aren't you? You're bringing mm. in you're bringing in better tech to cover up bad process. Yeah, yes. so that's yeah. that's that's an interesting thing. And I guess this could be a subject for another podcast. I really hope it is. Um, is so I, I think our um, marketplace is structured due to its market friction. So as you deal with those frictions, it will fundamentally shift how we do business. Because the thing, the reason why. Some of us in the room get paid to do what we do is because there's a market friction in collecting data and making a decision on it. Now, if you flipped the relationship of technology, information and decision making, there's that role changes. What I don't think it doesn't do, what it doesn't do is make it redundant. It just changes 
um, changes its relationship. So an analogy here, just so I'm not talking in complete abstract please do, terms, please, yes. is think about um, for those with um, some form of higher technical qualification, engineering, what have you, imagine trying to do all those exams that we did without a calculator. There was a time when engineering didn't have calculators. It would have taken a, a much, you know, a, a proportion of your education would have been churned up with calculation. Mm. Then with using calculators in exams, for example, the order of magnitude of the thing that you try to solve is much, is much, good afternoon, is much higher. We get to, hold, we get to solve more difficult problems. So I think with this technological landscape, the, the role of dealing with diff, uh, complex problems doesn't change. It just, we can deal with harder problems that we haven't quite seen yet. Yeah, exactly. It's like, this is almost like, um, back to a, an old infrastructure question we had. We're, we're, we're raising the platform mm. every time. And that, that is something that Digital Twins can certainly do, is be a platform for all sorts of innovations that we can't see. And that, that's what I'm excited mm. about, I'll be honest, is is that, um, for example, uh, smart motorways, I personally term as neurotic motorways. If there is a report of a problem, that's a problem, we're all lowering the speed. And I can understand that for safety and health reasons, but that is a more neurotic behaviour than a smart mm. behaviour in my mind. But as we start building better connections and, and connecting things we've not thought to connect before between highways, between buildings, between cities and all that sort of stuff, that's uh, when we can do some really cool uh, stuff. I don't think it stops there. It's it's also about platforms for creativity. If we think about the performing arts and the, the channels that they have to express themselves. If you think about how TV's progressed, the internet, YouTube. You always have to reference that David Bowie interview with Paxman whenever you discuss this. Oh, yeah. Everything's going to be so simpatico. No, it's just some technology. No, no, it's not. It's going to totally change the relationship between artists and the consumers because it's that, again, it's that friction. It's that transaction. That was uncanny. So it was like I was sat next to David Bowie. Uh, I do channel a bit of Bowie <laughs> from time to time. Was it was... Um, but, but but yeah, so it's 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 an opportunity to for, for something far broader because I think we always tie it back to technology and the benefits and you know we all understand the dysfunctions in all of the industries that we work in they're all very similar and uh, over to you Simon and I didn't I wasn't wanting to finish but I put my hand up uh, <laughs> very polite so I was going to say on both of those what that really speaks to is that this is a journey not just a destination, isn't it? Mm. And I find personally infuriating when you look out in the market and <laughs> they're mocked now by the other side. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I personally find it quite frustrating when you look at the market and you typically software see software and technology providers selling unicorns mm. about a digital twin, about it's this black box of magic. And you can see this at conferences and trade shows or everyone you want to go. Most presentations about twins start the same way. It'll start with somebody talking about Industry 4.0, someone saying how digital's coming, and then someone saying about the huge aspirations of what twins can achieve. Mm. And you look at it and you're just like, that's so much platitudes there. Why won't someone tell me something tangible and real about this? Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay. and it can't, it can't make up for a bad process. If you, if you haven't got basic information management down on your, on your project level or on a national level, then actually none of this matters. So what do we think is the most important next steps for digital twin in our industry then? Common we'll... languages and good information management. Standardisation, I'd say. Oh, Standardize... I can't believe you just faked the vomit at that. 
I, I, my, I, my challenge for standardization is is that um, we do want to we do need standardization. I know that, uh, but we do need to leave the marketplace open to mm-hmm. foster innovation. I think there's always a balancing act. There is. I, I probably didn't finish what I was going to say about standardization. Oh, I'm sure you did. <laughs> it was more. So I'm thinking actually bigger than just a twin. I'm thinking of the connection of twins, the ecosystem ah, of twins. Yes. For me, that's the next exciting thing. Um, twins haven't even come, and we're already talking about what happens if you connect twins, which yes. is crazy. Yes, yes. But I think we need to start with that frame in mind that if we don't think about that, my tuppence worth. But I'm going to keep saying whenever this comes up is um, we uh, in the built environment when we've tried to exchange information before, we've tried to consider every single use case, mm-hmm. every single mm-hmm. use case, and then plan for that. Whereas what we really need is just as you say, that kind of common language. It's just you interface. You're interfacing stuff A with stuff B through means C, mm-hmm. or, or whatever it is, how that works, so that, yes, you can standardise, but that's actually a platform for innovation. So do you think digital twin and the concept of digital twin is going to support standardisation within our industry then? Because standardisation in our industry is painful. It's, always, it's like a daily battle, isn't it? I don't think it's going to support standardisation, but I think it will only be successful if we get a grasp on how to standardise appropriately. And I think it's exactly what... Um, Henry and Simon have just been talking about. So not over-standardising so that you quash creativity and and new technology and new innovation, but standardising enough so that new ideas and new um, ways of working can almost seamlessly slide into our old processes. Now that was eloquent. (laughs) Am I allowed to go on a quick tangent? Because it's it's a podcast, it's got to be entertaining, please. (laughs) (laughs) So um, I was at the Turing a little while ago and I was sitting next to a guy that was very angry about papers that he was going through for a conference and they were from, he was saying, oh, these guys from Google, blah, 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 and and, what do you think of this and this, that and the other. And I was supposed to cut my long story short, uh, sitting next to this guy called John Crowcroft, who's essentially one of the grandfathers of the internet. Cool name. Um, And, you know, you're sitting next to somebody that was part of creating the internet and we're looking at the digital twin world and sort of explain to him why I'm sitting here. And he's, oh, that's really cool. It's really interesting. Um, and I said, well, what, what advice would you give? And he said, there's a thing that happened with the internet. Uh, there was those that went off to try and build the standards and the standards of the standards. And there's those that just got on and done it. Mm. Guess who made the internet? Group one or two. Mm. And which one do you reckon, people? Number two. Yeah. So yeah. I think we... Always ask for standardisation, but I do think we have to respect that doing by doing is the best way of getting something done. I completely agree with the premise of that, absolutely, but I'm wondering if there's an element of technology maturity. So I think there's a difference between the two, though. Because I I, I do agree, but what I mean is when they invented and spread the internet, there was an element of standardisation that made it possible to do it over a wider scale. And the best example I feel that I heard recently of this is the same when they standardised GSM in Europe compared with in the States. So if you don't know the story of this, um, I'm going to tell it anyway for the sake of the podcast. And all Good, the we're listening. Yeah, yeah. Um, so GSM, so the way that you communicate using cellular phones, they uh, kind of had two schools of thought of how to do it in the US and in Europe. So in the US, each of the network operators had their own style frequency of GSM. Um, you could phone anyone within your network, but to cross over to another network often wasn't possible. 
you either had to pay extortionate costs or your phone wouldn't work altogether, which led to multiple people having to carry around, in some cases, different phones so you could speak on different networks. Now, that still exists in some developing countries where they have to have different phones to cover different regions of the country just because cellular coverage isn't universal. And that had a bit of a stagnation in the market where they didn't really see a lot of growth. In the meantime, in Europe, they did the opposite, where they had GSM and they decided they're just going to standardise the use of GSM and the network across all of Europe, which then led to every single mobile phone provider and operator driving innovation in the devices and handsets instead. So, we, it, which ultimately, but, yeah. which ultimately led to how we saw Nokia become the most prevalent mobile phone company in the world. But that was the consensus on a standard, and there is a difference between the consensus mechanism and the standard. Agreed. So, that, very much agree. And I think it's about having effective ways of making that consensus. So that consensus probably was born from a cultural thing, it being part of the European movement because of that culture, so on and so on. If we think about the, the you know, I think a lot of us has worked with American organisations and realised that there is a cultural difference between those two. And I think that GSM example is quite an interesting uh, manifestation of the yeah. American culture against against ours. I mean, okay. We're not going to mention the B word, but it's it, and these things are shifting. But it does tie back to a very similar, similar conversation. I think it happened at the same time about the GSM one. Is about the, the the market for telecoms globally, where telecoms companies were sort of trying to have this global domination of the network, and it's and it's fundamentally failed. And it, it the tipping point of its failure was in three G, where lots of organisations threw a lot of money in the implementation of 3G and obviously we've got 4G's coming through 5G now and uh, I think that and what I guess the feedback is from that industry is that it's interesting that for example technology companies like I believe it's Facebook I'll have to reference check that you know companies like that are then subsidizing the creation of those networks for their needs and I think it's quite interesting that the services that needs the network are subsidising it. It's not that the network is being created and the ser and the, the service is coming on top. It's that the service is now dictating where that infrastructure is being built. And I think that's an interesting dynamic. Because I, I guess to go, to to go back before. full circle on what you said about grandfather of the internet. I've forgotten his name now. Jonathan Jonathan Crowcroft. Crowcroft. Jonathan Crowcroft. What you basically said was the people that actually picked up the thing and did the thing made the thing. And I think that's, was that the point you were yeah, yeah. at? It is about now trying to do some stuff. But, but it was, built on, a very, it was, it was built on a very simple platform then, yes. wasn't it? And there was a original round. I yeah, don't original know if that work. Original HTML, you know, I mean, what's happened, if you look at, you know, the, the HTML standards now, there's his standard web page, and then there's all these different ways of doing loads of other things but they all tie back into that original platform. It's given them that opportunity to go I think, and do that. I think stuff. we keep coming back to, the, to something that, that we haven't touched on enough, which is culture. And no matter how good the standards are, if the culture behind them isn't that of uh, collaboration and good ethics, it, we're not going to get anywhere anyway. So um, a, a, a great example of that is you can be following all the rules of a standard. So I saw an incredible presentation by the um, ex-CFO of Enron the other day, um, and he was saying he held up his CFO of the um, Year Award that he got from CFO magazine and his inmate card from prison and said, I got both of these for doing exactly the same deals. <laughs> and um, it's that difference between doing the right thing and doing the right thing um, and that's, we keep coming back to, you can write as many standards and procedures as you want, but if people 
don't actually take the initiative to do the right thing and the good thing and to collaborate and work together, it's useless. So, so this so is the rule basically of Simon's going to jail at some point then. That's all I'm saying. This is about unintentional consequences. Well, you been? Have you been to jail, Simon? Is that the key point? Yeah, okay. My twin has, maybe. My digital twin. No. So this is about <laughs> unintended consequences, isn't it? Because mm. I really loved your intonation of the right thing or the right thing. I, I, I can't do that intonation, but I could tell that one was correct and one was virtuous. You know, there were very two different, two different, different spoke, things there. We, we spoke about the Gemini principles at the beginning, and mm. It's, mm. It's, it's, it's not the creation of the objective, it's, it's the step before that of a creation of the consciousness, which, you know, some people might roll their eyes out and go, oh, well, what? But it's a really important step because we're not, we're not, we're, it's, we're not doing something as trivial as connecting mobile phones together. Mm. Mm-hmm. I mean, we look how powerful that's been. That's turned over countries. That's empowered people yeah. to to unite. It's done some pretty negative things, but I think this is on, so much on more. the whole, on average, it's probably been positive. It's made what we're doing here possible. It's right? reduced the transaction cost. It's reduced. Have friction friction is reduced. reduced friction. I've learned. I've learned something. Um, so, and we, then we, now we're talking about connecting. You know, we talk about. Uh, you know, uh, Henry and I have debated previously about the. Um, how important infrastructure is and connecting that to the internet is a really important thing we can't and I'm going to contradict myself about doing by doing um, I think there is an element of we really have to think about the consciousness of the twin because it's I just, I just don't want to see it uh, I don't want to see it uh, bound and tied and gagged before it has a chance to really grow. Mm. I, I don't think gagging time or in any other way restraining digital twins from living their fullest lives. <laughs> Anything other than tragedy, okay? But then this is going back to, sorry, the Gemini principles that Neil mentioned just then as well. If you look at actually what they say and the higher consciousness construct that Neil was unpacking, they're all very ethical based mm. about everything has to be trusted, have a purpose, be good, be for the greater good of society. Value or values? <laughs> for the greater good of society or for the greater good of society? This has been the Digital Twin Fan Club podcast. Thank you for listening.